and welcome to this week's Feminist Futures. I'm your host Wallace Grant. Hope you're all good. I'm definitely feeling quite positive this week seeing the vaccine being rolled out well and the kind of end of lockdown restrictions coming so hope that's definitely perked you up a little bit. Thanks for bearing with me last week. I moved house and so I I decided not to do an episode just because I was quite busy Um, and I'm glad that I did because it gave me some more time just to to work on this one and and it's a really good one this week. This week we're talking about access to healthcare for trans people and for it I'm joined by Alexa Moore who is a director at Transgender NI. Transgender NI work to support and advocate for trans people in Northern Ireland and as a result for people in other parts of Britain and also across the world. I saw Alexa speak recently in an event and what I was struck by was her ability to translate her like very obvious passion and drive for the topic and to clear asks and to get down into the nitty gritty without being overcomplicated and really you know showing exactly how we can make access to care for example better for trans people and I think you'll agree with me that that translates well into into today's episode. I wanted to talk about trans rights but I didn't want to talk about it in the way that it's been blown up in 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 the so-called culture wars and Alexa put it really well in the episode she calls it a distraction and that's exactly as I see it. Trans people across the world face disproportionate discrimination and this translates into things such as access to care or as we've seen by recent investigations by Galdem, access to support when they're suffering from domestic abuse or violence. And with the episode I really wanted to focus in on the issues that these groups are, are facing because to me and, and I feel like the rest of the feminist movement should be taking a firm stance and standing hand in hand with our trans brothers and sisters and supporting them at a time when they're basically being piled on for goodness knows what reason. So this episode really tries to touch on what access to care looks like right now for trans people and particularly with a Northern Irish perspective. I really love that having Alexa on the show opened my eyes up to another devolved nation's um, kind of healthcare system and also the specific problems that come come with that. And I think often Northern Ireland does get left behind when we talk about problems in the UK. So it was nice to centre some of the voices from there in this episode. We also talk about how gender identity clinics and wider trans healthcare are situated in mental health and why it shouldn't be like that. And talk about what we can do to create a system that is actually built for trans people rather than for cisgender people and trying to stop them from transitioning. And we do talk and touch upon the so-called kind of gender culture war that is going on, but talk about the real life impacts that, that transphobia have, not only just on the trans community, but on the LGBT community and women as well. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can tweet at us, you can Instagram me, um, you can send me an email. I always love to hear your feedback and would love to hear any ideas for upcoming topics. I'm always open to, to having guests on. And if you really like the show, please do rate and subscribe. You can find that on Apple and Spotify and it does help um, for other people, other people finding it. Enjoy this week's show. Thanks so much for joining me and yeah for taking time out to chat I really appreciate it I'm sure it's a it's a busy time time for you as it is for everyone um yeah I saw you speak at the at the AWID event I think it was in January right a little while ago and yeah I just was really interested in your and your research and the work that you're that you're doing so I wanted to to grab you on for for a chat 
um I also read your article or you got quoted in Vice was it Vice a couple of weeks ago or something um yes yes we we were quoted in in Vice News with regards to the the crisis in trans healthcare in Northern Ireland and a few of our you know community members and service users were were in that as well it was it was a really good article um, yeah. I'm glad that it's it's starting to get a little bit of attention across the water as well. It definitely was, and that's what sparked me to think. Right, I need to to send the email and and, and get <laughs> and get you on. Um, thank but you yeah, so thank much you for, so for inviting. Uh, of me, course, happy to happy to contribute. I'm really forward to chatting. But yeah, it's basically I wanted to to have a discussion. Obviously, you know, there is a huge. Um, discussion in the media and obviously on social media about about trans rights but I think for for me personally what is left out of that conversation is actually the kind of impact and the and the 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 actual real issues that are affecting the transgender community and one of them is of course access to healthcare, both during that kind of transitioning period and then afterwards you know as as everyone does we all access healthcare and we all want to do it in a very safe and and uncomfortable way but some of the sort of um, testimonies and, and the things I'm reading from people are that that isn't that isn't the case and that actually accessing healthcare for for the trans community is is difficult often often and, and traumatic so I want to I want to touch a little bit on on the kind of um what it's like to access healthcare while you're while you're transitioning first and then we can move on to talk about things more broadly but just for listeners like could could you explain what the route is to access and health help if you if you suffer from gender dysphoria and you can talk about it from from a northern irish perspective or 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 uk whichever health health system you want to want to tackle there sure of course um well i mean the uk and northern ireland are are, are quite similar um in terms of kind of the pathway that they expect trans people to go through um i would just kind of say that it's uh, it's not just you know people who experience gender dysphoria because that's you know relatively contested within the community um there are some folks who you know will say either that you know you don't need gender dysphoria to be trans or that they you know don't identify with that term it's quite medicalized it's it's one of the only kind of more medicalized terms used still within the community but you know there's there's still that kind of pushback as well so in in terms of kind of where people go to get access to healthcare so this is all in theory because right now it's it's all broken down and <laughs> you know yeah. we'll get into that but in theory, uh, if you want to um, access healthcare, if you're coming out as trans and you're wondering, okay, where do I go? Um, first port of call is generally the GP. And right. so you go to your GP, you present um, and say, look, you know, I'm questioning my gender or I identify as a trans man or a trans woman or non-binary or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And then depending on your age, your GP will either refer you straight to the gender identity service in the region. So in Northern Ireland, we have one. It's called the Knock Bracken uh, Clinic. Or sorry, <laughs> it's in the Knock Bracken Healthcare Park. It's called the Brackenburn Clinic. That was a, <laughs> a Freudian slip. For under 18s, the process is a little bit more complicated. So first of all, mm-hmm. you have to, so you, you go to your GP, same as, same as the other one. Um, but you're then referred to the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service where you get assessed there before being referred to the under 18's gender identity service. So there's just kind of additional barriers in place um, for younger people as well, trying to access that care. And, you know, again, like this, it's it's a kind of symptom of um, mm-hmm. the fact that this is all housed within mental health services. So yeah. mm-hmm. this, this is all done within a kind of psychiatric 
model of care. It treats trans identity as inherently disordered. And, mm. you know, obviously that doesn't match up with the experiences or the identities or the, the lived realities of trans people on the ground. It, it takes a very top-down approach and, and something that, you know, our, our community members will say a lot and, you know, kind of, I would, I would tend to agree is that mm. these services, gender identity services, um, are built for cis people. They're built to pre- like mm. prevent cis people from accidentally transitioning. This kind of, you know, this this uh, imaginary cis person that is struggling and questioning their gender and 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 kind of, you know, um, may God forbid, if given the access yeah. to 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 timely uh, healthcare, accidentally transition. And I mean. You know, I can go as in depth or not in this first question as you want, but if we're if we're looking at kind of if we're looking at it from that perspective, actually the the processes of these gender services are actually quite detrimental to people mm. who are questioning their gender. They're quite detrimental to those who haven't figured everything out because yeah. you're you're almost expected to take all the boxes, and if you don't take all the boxes, then you can't get access to care. And exactly that means for a lot of people that they're going to attempt to tick as many boxes as they can even if that results or even if that involves lying to their clinicians exactly and unfortunately that that happens a lot um yeah within our communities because we just see so many examples of people being denied access to care for so such frivolous reasons um, exactly that, that trans folks feel the need to kind of um to, to, to take as many boxes as they can and, and make the process as simple as possible for them. It sounds like, first of all, I didn't know that it was, you know, mostly kind of housed in that, in the kind of mental health space, which speaks to how the NHS and other healthcare services view, you know, um, a, a gender trans- transitioning. And I think what's really interesting when you were talking about the, the barriers, it really um, reminded me of, of of someone accessing an abortion very similar in terms of like creating all these barriers to say an uphill battle to, to actually getting something which which should be much more of, of a caring approach I wanted to just quickly talk about one of the, the headlines that I see often is kind of like the wait times that people that people kind of experience do you have like a kind of average ballpark that that, that some of the people in your community say that they waste on just to give a, a sense of what that is for for someone well, Northern Ireland's a special case. Yeah. So, I thought that. Um, you know, the 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 waiting times for the rest of the UK they can be generally, you know, depending on the the clinic, can be around three to five years. Um, there's there's massive variation there as well. Again, there are some clinics that are massively oversubscribed mm. um, and underfunded, as is always the case. Of course, but I think it's uh, well. Come, I'll answer your, your waiting list question first. In Northern Ireland, basically three years ago, the only adult gender service in the region stopped accepting new patients. Um, so since then, and it's changed a little bit in, in the past few months, there's a few patients kind of coming in now, but for the past like approximately three years, um, there have essentially been patients tacked on to the end of that waiting list, but mm. no patients going into the service and so it was growing exponentially Mm -hmm. um and you know what that mean what that meant was is that for the past three years because the department of health hasn't really been communicative with us hasn't 
sent out letters, hasn't haven't you know been actively involving the community, engaging the community, and making sure that f- folks are able to access kind of inter intermediary sorry in- mm-hmm. intermediary support uh, mm-hmm. through this yeah. period. Trans people are calling up the clinic monthly asking, okay, look, you know, what's what's my position on this waiting list? And they're being told the same number month after month after month. And that's just so demoralizing. Gosh, it, yeah. It's 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 brutal for folks to to have to go through that. And I mean, you know, it it has resulted in a massive deterioration in well being in the community. Um, course, yeah. in Northern Ireland and then obviously you have the COVID which has been, yeah. been added on top of that but I mean I think it's worth kind of interrogating why the waiting lists are so long and to mm. understand that I mean it, it's 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 easy to talk about okay it's framed within a mental health model it's easy to kind of say that without exploring what it means but it, in reality so that model has been used for about the past 100 years Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't really meaningfully changed in about a century so that should tell you one thing yeah um, definitely for people going through those services there is a significant amount of gatekeeping there's a significant amount of assessment that they have to go through there's uh, we hear of people having a gender identity clinic suit and a gender identity clinic dress that they wear um in order to essentially in order to present an image that their clinician will view as legitimate. Um, and it, it, it's, it's again, you made a really pertinent point with the comparison to abortion access, mm. because that is all about controlling people's bodies. Yeah. That is all about gatekeeping. It's all about, you know, denying people access to basic reproductive health care that would exactly, improve yeah. their lives. Um, and it's the exact same for trans health care. But what fathoms you from what you're saying is that you're already at minus points when you arrive you know you're already on the back foot essentially when you arrive to this clinic as I can imagine someone who has maybe it's affected your your well-being maybe your physical well-being and then you turn up thinking okay I'm ready to like take that step forward and get the help that I need and you're faced with a system that is completely unfit for purpose and it doesn't fit the needs of the people it's serving Absolutely. and a hundred years it's never it's not even in the last five ten years there hasn't been that much improvement to how they how the service works that that is no. shocking to me yeah it, it, it's uh, and uh, I mean the problem is that the clinicians have no vested interest in improving that service they have a vent, vested interest often in maintaining their power that they have over trans people and it's the same with the department of health it's the same with the with the kind of uh, folks who are in charge of this policy. And I mean, what, what, what I was um, kind of talking a little bit about that kind of assessment process in there. And I mentioned, you know, the, the suits and the dresses that people feel like they have to wear mm. in order to get access to care. And again, it's another example of where that service is not built for the people who it's meant to be supporting. The, exactly. that, that gender identity clinic is essentially attempting to force gender roles onto trans people and often i I, i'm sure you've noticed in the kind of in the culture war that has been waging over trans rights and trans identities in the past number of years you know one of the biggest kind of one of the biggest sticks that we are beat with is that oh trans people are 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 out there they're reinforcing gender roles they're bringing us back to the 1960s blah 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 and you know it's 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 almost farcical because, I mean, one, um, the trans folks who do uh, kind of 
conform to gender stereotypes and and would kind of be more comfortable for instance as a trans woman wearing dresses as a trans man wearing suits and um, often mm. that is for safety reasons that's for protection yeah. of yourself in the day life that's so you don't get quote unquote clocked and you know exactly. harassed and discriminated against by cis people out in the world and also it's because the gic is pushing it on us the yeah. gender identity services are you know then obviously they'll come back and say you know we're not forcing people to you know we just yeah. we just you know um th- there's just implicit expectations and yeah. it's it, you know even if it's not necessarily on the assessment criteria it's something that a clinician notices exactly. and if the clinician notices it the trans person notices it and then they feel the need to perform yeah. and and again it's it's all a performance and and something that we hear so often within trans communities is that they feel this this you know they they want to be able to express themselves in a really diverse ways and be gender non-conforming and and do all this do all this stuff and and they just feel trapped by the the model of care that these services have and i think you know something that you mentioned at the start in terms of the you know the traumatization that people go through mm-hmm. um, in a lot of cases in these services um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, in the under 18 service, even we have so many young people and their families coming to us and attesting to the fact that, you know, I was taken like as a parent, I was taken out of the room um, and and my kid was asked about their sex life, was asked about their masturbatory habits and was asked about their sexuality as if that had anything to do with their trans identity. Yeah, and, exactly. you know, we have we have parents and kids coming to us all the time and, and you know, saying that. I felt really uncomfortable. I felt like, you know, and, and wouldn't you? If you know, if, if you were going yeah. for um abortion, if you were going to access any routine form of healthcare and being asked about your masturbatory habits, even as a as a we've heard that this as young as like 15, 14. Wow. Like it's completely ridiculous what these clinicians are able to get away with. Exactly. And you know, obviously, there there are some folks in these services who do want to work to make it better, who do want to support their trans patients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, often they feel like they're stymied by the policies and, and by the by the kind of framework within which they have to work. They can always do more. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I not that I have no sympathy for them, but, you know, they aren't the ones who are having to go through it. So, you know, clinicians can always do more. Definitely. I think that was something that really struck me when I was when I was just kind of doing some research about, you know, what it's like as a trans person to access healthcare, And, you know, some of the stories of of just discrimination. And as you said, that kind of people feeling like they have to perform in a certain way to then be able to have health care. That's 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 good for them is must be such a it must be such a burden to hold when you're going into 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 like a what's supposed to be a safe space you know I think a lot of us you know maybe maybe not for people who've who've experienced it but you know we assume the healthcare system and people involved in it are there for our well-being but actually Mm -hmm. some of the stories that I I read and and find and I think from Stonewall it said that 24% of trans people had faced discrimination from from a healthcare provider that's like a fifth of people it's a really high stat Do, do you feel like that impacts people's abilities to then return and seek healthcare. The fact that you have trans people 
experience and discrimination a first time if that deters them from going back and could ultimately deter their their health in general like oh. regardless of, of you know what they're going for 100% and I mean again I'm thinking in a Northern Ireland context with and Northern Ireland's an incredibly incredibly rural population it's quite disparate and you know a trans person living in Belfast is going to have a massively different experience to a trans person living in rural Fermanagh where there may be one general practitioner or one even Mm -hmm. one GP surgery for an entire village and that one GP surgery may have dealt with your entire family and friends may you know the GP might be a family friend as well so you know there's there's barriers at every single point and whenever people you know a lot of the times people go to their GPs and yeah. their GPs know absolutely nothing about this. And and yeah. what they see is their GPs Googling things as they're talking, Googling what the Brackenburn Clinic is. So trans people, when they're going to a GP, will often feel yeah. the need to like know every single little thing there is to know about the process. And so they can basically almost take advantage of the fact that their GP doesn't wow. know anything to get that referral through quicker. <laughs> and and so you know it's there there is almost this you know yeah. this uh, militant preparedness within the trans community for for when we're dealing with healthcare professionals because you're absolutely right when people have bad experiences yeah. that word spreads people talk we have a community you know that 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 information is shared and when individuals themselves have those bad experiences what we see is people just not returning to healthcare services self excluding um and and not getting regular checkups not you know exactly going to the doctor when there's something wrong um and you know kind of coming back a little bit to what we were talking about with regards to the assessment criteria i think one of the biggest failings of that is uh, and and again it's a symptom of being based within mental health services there is a requirement um in order to access gender affirming healthcare you are required to have direct quote uh, relatively stable psychosocial health okay. um for a period of of 6 months so what that means is that if you have uh, attended a mental health service if you have requested support for your mental health if you have identified yourself as having anxiety mm. or depression or you know if you have said that your mental health is deteriorated as a result of not getting access to healthcare that can be used to deny you wow. access to healthcare and so what what happens is that trans people are in this kind of catch 22 where you often need the healthcare in order to improve the mental health but you can't access the healthcare exactly. because of your mental health um and and they're just caught in this loop and again it's it, that's why people lie that's it's it's why people kind of are uh, are less able to be open and honest with their clinicians and less able to you know to eat kind of explore themselves themselves within Mm. that service in a comfortable way in a way that you know in a way where they're not rushing decisions where they are actually given the time to figure out who they are what kind of healthcare they need what kind of support they need in you know we'll talk about what the future looks like in in a bit but you know we're not saying that you know trans people shouldn't have to access mental mental health support um well i mean actually we are saying that we shouldn't have to access mental health support in order to access gender affirming health care but what we what we're also saying is that you know 
these should all be integrated yes. in a way that trans people are able to access what they need exactly. when they need it. And so, you know, if hormone replacement therapy is the first thing that a person wants, then that's the first thing that they should be exactly. able to access. Mental health care can be offered, absolutely, but it needs to be done within that affirming framework where people don't feel like accessing one service is going to prevent them exactly. accessing another. It's like they're sort of, they're separate but interlinked, right? You don't want them bundled in together to be like, you have to, you know, mm-hmm. you're accessing mental health care, so therefore you can't access this. But they, they come <clears throat> as a package because obviously mental health is such a broad spectrum. And when you were saying, you know, the thing about having not accessed something in, 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 in six months and then being able to access something else, I was just thinking about, you know, as an ordinary person, imagine someone saying, okay, you can't, you can't have, or think about abortion. You can't have an abortion if you've accessed mental health services in, in six months. You'd be like, that's completely separate and completely different. And yet for this, mm-hmm. we think it's okay. Or, or, or the system thinks it's okay to say that. No, absolutely. And I mean, like it's, it's the, the reality is that this wouldn't happen to, to cis people. <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously exactly. it's, it, it, it gets a little bit more complicated when you're looking at other minority groups uh, within society. You know, of course, we know yeah. that that racialized people across the UK have really, really horrible experiences in healthcare, and you know, kind of uh, birth mortality rate uh, for women of color is exactly. is just incredibly low. Um, in Northern Ireland, in particular, the Roma traveller community um, are incredibly yeah. distrustful of healthcare services as well, and and you know. Um, what we see whenever we're talking about healthcare within our own communities is that, well, one, there is a significant representation of disability uh, and neurodiversity within trans communities. And two, mm. trans people see how that affects their access to healthcare. They see how that affects their access to services because people see, you know, kind of clinicians, cis people see trans and autistic and think oh well one of them one of these things has to cancel the other out right one of these things has uh, is irrelevant um and you know it's it's the it's often you know people say oh well you know you're maybe you're not trans maybe it's just the autism making you think that we again we we hold kind of workshops anytime we're developing policy anytime we're doing a consultation mm-hmm. response for instance to to a public consultation we'll try and consult with our service users with our communities we'll try and make sure that their views are heard as much as possible and we did one recently mm-hmm. on a bill of rights in northern ireland and the biggest mm-hmm. the biggest thing that came up was this intersection of of ableism and transphobia within wow. healthcare services in particular mm. and how that is used to deny people access to care and so you know when we're thinking about trans people and we're thinking about access to healthcare we need to also be thinking about you know how that intersects with other demographics um of it, course yeah disabled people asylum seekers in particular as well really struggle to access any kind of healthcare especially transition related yeah. healthcare um so yeah no there's there's a lot of considerations there definitely yeah I want to move on and talk about because the, the kind of future because I, I want to try and paint a picture for people who are listening about what it could look like and what it should look like you know I think you've talked about we've talked about a little bit about separating out separating out um gender identity clinics from from mental health services but I wonder if you could just talk about you can talk about it from a northern Irish perspective as well like what how you would see a kind of compassionate and 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 appropriate or you know accessible healthcare for for a trans person looking like what it would look like for you i think well so 
the way you know the way it currently is is gender identity services gender affirming healthcare is based within mental health mm. i don't necessarily think that those should be separated i don't mm. I like i am in favor of integrated care yeah but what that means is you know multiple different services on an equal footing kind of working within the same the same framework right. yeah, to yeah. support people what that means is not gatekeeping one service based on if you've accessed another again if a trans person wants to go to a gender service and access hormone replacement therapy and doesn't want any kind of mental health support and doesn't need any kind of social support they should be able to do that if if trans folks want to go to a gender affirming healthcare service and explore their gender Mm -hmm. talk to someone about it if they want to get mental health support if they want to figure things out before they take any decisions then again they should be facilitated in doing that exactly and what we're talking about is is a model of um informed consent Mm -hmm. um a model where the 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 patient is the most important person in this equation because and, and it's it's always the way the patient is the one that should have the last say. And again, if we're thinking about abortion access, yeah. it needs to be the pregnant person who has a say on whether or not they have an abortion. It needs to be the trans person who has a say on whether or not they access transition-related health care. Um, and again, I really do think that this, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, detransition. And uh, again, that kind of, that cis person accidentally transitioning. I think a model like this one where you know the patient is trusted to make their own decisions yeah. and is also able to access support and guidance and help to make those decisions i think that kind of service would actually be so much better for people to openly and safely and freely figure out who they are and making the right decisions for them exactly so you know what we want to see isn't some clinic up in the hill filled with a bunch of crusty old cis people yeah. making decisions on trans lives we yeah. we want to see you know one we want to see trans people being meaningfully involved in the running of that service mm-hmm. two it needs to be decentralized it can't just be one clinic in belfast serving yeah. the entirety of northern ireland it needs to be kind of more localized for instance gps can be trained up to to deliver hormone replacement therapy and monitor that it's being done in wales yeah it's you know it's being done in other places around the world and i think that one of the mistakes that we make when we're talking about healthcare, and this isn't just trans healthcare, this is all different kinds of healthcare. you know we look to america Mm-hmm. And we look to the UK yeah. and we look to the Republic of Ireland and we maybe look some places in Europe, but we don't really look that much farther afield in terms of best practice, mm-hmm. in terms of human rights compliance, because we think, oh, well, you know, us Western nations, we've got it sorted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are so many other places, Malta, uh, Argentina, um, Cuba, that have figured this stuff out so much better than we have Mm -hmm. and again you know i'm gonna go back to my previous point we haven't changed this model of care in like a hundred years we haven't meaningfully made any kind of structural changes to how we treat trans people it's still treated as a mental disorder it's still done within that kind of framework even as the, the world health organization has moved it out of mental health and into sexual health the uk has done nothing wow you know, and, and I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners will be aware of the 
you know, the puberty blockers ruling that happened um, towards, was it the end of, of last year, mm-hmm. preventing under 16s from accessing puberty blockers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is just another example of, of, you know, trans experiences and trans lives being kind of cl- collateral damage yeah. um, of this wider culture war that is going on. And, you know, it's worth kind of noting this is this is a feminist futures podcast. Yeah. This is a podcast about feminism. It's worth noting that, you know, if you're looking partic- in particular at Northern Ireland, it's not perfect, but we have really, really good relationships with the women's sector. Mm-hmm. We yeah. work really, really closely. I'm, I sit on the women's policy group. I mean, you know, you invited me on here because um, I was I was speaking about our feminist recovery plan. Yeah. Um, exactly. on, on a kind of international stage and, and kind of talking about how we all work together ourselves, kind of disability advocacy groups, um, migrant advocacy groups, um, and, uh, you know, lesbian and bisexual women's groups and, and, and so many rural women's groups, all these different kind of demographics and community organizations working together to produce a, a vision for a feminist future that's something that needs to happen more. And I mean, I think this culture war in Britain is kind of heavily distracting from it. I think that's such an interesting way of putting it because for me, feminism is about imagining like what, what can be and how we can expand and, and and create better futures for everyone and it's mostly based on power right of, of course it's, it's it's to do with those gender dynamics but it's about it's about power and the, the way you put it is it is a distraction this whole conversation that's happening in the background is a complete distraction and is is pointless to to, to, to my to my it, it's obviously important and in order to understand the impacts it's having on the trans community and people's <laughs> abuse of it but public opinion polls show time and time again that women are in favor particularly of trans women being you know in their spaces or or whatever and we actually see i don't know if you read the galdem um kind of uh, investigation that was about transphobia in the in the in the domestic violence and, and violence against women space and like those are the real impacts of these wider culture conversations that we're having and genuinely i just think it's a bunch of like really bored like white middle class women who don't really have a lot to like fo- hold on to anymore um i was trying to explain it to my to my partner the other day and he was just like it just sounds like people are bored and they they want to have this pull apart something that that doesn't actually exist you know um absolutely yeah i i I think it's worth noting or kind of exploring how that movement has evolved in the past four or five years as well because you know it started in 2016 with the gender recognition act reform Mm, yeah Uh, well it didn't start there but you know it kind of came to the forefront yeah of um, British political discussion in 2016 and then you moved on to schools and they attacked relationships and sexuality education in schools and they attacked affirming policies in schools and then we moved on to healthcare and they attacked the ability of young people to access healthcare they attacked the entire concept of Gillick competency which was introduced to enable young young pregnant people mm-hmm. to access abortion without the consent of their parents and and so you know this is having knock-on effects on other communities on other people who need access to healthcare, and you know there's been there's been lots of investigations done around this kind of like transphobic masquerading as feminist activity Mm -hmm. um and you know what we see is a lot of a lot of the money for this is coming from kind of 
ultra conservative yeah. religious groups in based in America yeah. and they're trying to export that kind of conservatism that transphobia over to Britain exactly. um and I mean they've done an excellent job they have it's 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 really really unfortunate because they've done a bloody brilliant job and and I fear that it's you know part of the the kind of the media culture in the UK yeah. and just the kind of punching down yeah. that is almost uh, not not just condoned but encouraged within the media uh, in, in in the UK but they have been really really able to convince themselves yeah. and convince some other people definitely not the majority of other people but some other people that they are acting in in you know in women's interests in the interests of the feminist movement more broadly and what they're actually doing is entrenching old power dynamics Completely. and and setting back the the movement years yeah i think that you know part of the reason that northern ireland um that 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 kind of splinter hasn't happened yet well one you know we've done a lot of groundwork yeah. we know the we know the people in the women's sector uh, like we know the people in the lgbt sector we all work together exactly. like on a daily weekly basis um so you know we have those relationships and i think northern ireland benefits from being a little bit smaller in yeah. that way because we're yeah. able to build those relationships but also we we come from this kind of not just history but this contemporary context of the kind of ultra conservative religious right being holding the state power holding the holding the state state apparatus mm -hmm. you know um the 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 women's sector and women's movements and lgbt movements have kind of suffered equally in that regard we still don't have access to abortion um exactly. in a kind of in a in a fully accessible way in northern ireland um and and you know i think that we all recognize that you know trans people aren't denying other people access to abortion exactly. you know the feminist organizations and movements aren't denying trans people access to health care it's the state yeah. it's the it's the people in power it's the healthcare services it's the clinicians it's the people who write the laws it's the northern ireland office okay. it's the northern ireland executive yeah. it's the this kind of entrenched um conservatism mm -hmm within our state yep. and i think that you know because it's so clear yeah. in northern ireland and i think it's the same in in america obviously you know there's there's pockets of of transphobic feminist activity yeah. but it's nowhere near the same extent as in britain i think britain has kind of lost the lost the kind of the the common enemy if you will totally um, yeah in, in that you know they they don't have this kind of ultra conservative religious kind of power holding the state apparatus and 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 showing that okay actually this is where the oppression comes from yeah. so they're able to have these really weird arguments and turn it against each other um internally and i think that's absolutely a boon for conservatives i think that's a boon for people who don't like feminists and don't like trans people <laughs> I think that it's a, we're only hurting each other. Totally. It's like we're on the same team. Like, you know, that's the thing that gets me with these women. I'm like, you understand that the people who, who support you also don't like you to have 
bodily autonomy or rights or want to end you know violence and harassment for you and I'm currently like in my actual day job I'm working for um like working on a women's rights survey at the moment and and it includes gender diverse people and we're reaching out to sort of influencers in across the it's a worldwide thing but in the UK as well and I've had three very prominent sort of people come back to me and question the inclusion of gender diverse people in our in our survey and it frustrates me that I'm now having to like my I'm now having to be like is this person a, a turf and even like with the podcast I'm like googling people like obviously not yourself but like other people <laughs> being like do they have really weird views that I don't know about and it's I, I just didn't really un- I knew it was going on but I didn't really understand it's sort of saturated into these powerful you know power in terms of that they are well-known people and yeah. yet all of my friends and everyone around us is like oh yeah trans women or women like there's no there's not even a conversation you know no but I think it's I I do think that it's a a really important point and I mean you know so much of this kind of you know at the you know we we refer to turfs um I I try to avoid that term just because you know uh there's so much discourse around turf is a slur and it's used to silence women and all that you're a better person Uh, as (laughs) as 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 a woman I am not being silenced by the term turf but uh, (laughs) um (laughs) what what I was gonna say is that you know on the ground these questions almost aren't even questions you mentioned there's like opinion polls showing that you know women are overwhelmingly in favor of trans people's inclusion based on their gender in different gendered facilities and services and it's the same in northern ireland the northern ireland life and time survey um showed again net favorability across all different areas women's refuges bathrooms changing facilities gyms all of these different services and facilities um that were like cis women on on the whole in general are in favor of trans women being able to access it and you know the problem is actually usually with men and and you know we do see this a lot in terms of you know some organizations that have sprouted up that's that are filled with men such as the lgb alliance and and you know it is this really weird phenomena of I mean, it's kind of similar to like psyops, yeah. Um, in 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 a kind of you know foreign relations yeah. uh, context, it's it, the, these organizations and groups are being set up, purporting to advocate for you know LGB people or for women. In in reality, if you strip away a, a layer of paint, it is just the same old repackaged transphobia. Yeah. Um, they're using the same uh, talking points that were heard around Section Twenty Eight, and it's exactly. you know there, there's there's no real difference in what they're actually advocating for. They're looking to silence trans people. They're looking to keep them out of the public sphere. They're looking for them not to be supported in education and for relationships and sexuality education to exclude them. This is all Section Twenty Eight stuff, yes. um, exactly. but just for trans people. Yeah. it's absurd and it's like they've just decided that trans people exist you know like i'm like trans people existed Mm -hmm. for the whole of time and and you know obviously not in terms of maybe some visibility and and that side of things but i i I also my friend and i were talking about you know the bathroom thing about all access to bathroom and stuff like that and they were like the only thing you need to know about coming into women's toilets are are you ready to have a drunken emotional conversation with someone and tell them (laughs) that they're amazing and that they need to dump whatever person they're texting you know that's the only to me like it's this whole thing about safe space it's like it's a safe space for you to come and be emotional and drunk regardless of what gender you are you know like it doesn't it doesn't bother me whatsoever god i miss i miss club toilets that's just 
having them. Oh god, I miss nights out. Don't oh, I swear to <laughs> Jesus, just... I would kill I to go to a gay bar. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> what, I was, what I was gonna say actually is just on the toilets issue, and and again, kind of coming back to media stuff. I mean, it's been blown so far out of proportion, and you can tell that these media types who, you know, the reality is that there are a lot of let's say undesirable yeah. people who who you know write a lot of these newspaper columns and are editors at a lot of these papers and have a lot of power over the discourse mm-hmm. in Britain that don't necessarily reflect the actual the people on the ground the experiences on the ground exactly what that translates into is people thinking that you know oh this oh this bathroom issue is all about trans women it's all yeah. about you know kind of um, denying access to trans women what it materially translates to on the ground is butch cis women being challenged lesbian uh, cis women being challenged as well as trans women Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know it's 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 a kind of facet of like you know these people just really aren't connected with reality and if they are then that's even worse because they're doing it deliberately because they don't care about lesbian, gay and bisexual people. They don't care about butch cis women. They don't care about people who break gender roles because if they did, then they wouldn't be arguing for more policing of gendered spaces for more, you know, for for the bathroom police to to be sitting checking birth certificates at the door. You know, it's not not feasible. And it also has massive knock-on effects on other minority communities and on people who they claim to represent and who, and who they claim to kind of advocate for. Exactly. Yeah. Oh gosh. That was... <laughs> but get, I feel like I could get into sorry, the ins- I go No, I could definitely <laughs> get into the ins and outs of all the, all that. And that's, it was funny. Cause I was like, I don't want to kind of draw into that. Cause I was like, I don't want to give them airtime or talk about those things, but it's so important, right. To situate it. And as you, you know, kind of bring it down to how it's actually impacting people mm-hmm. on the ground. I want to just I want to move on because I want to talk about how we get there. We've talked a little bit about how we can how we can how we can address the kind of issues maybe structurally or to have this more integrated care approach. I guess one of the one of the things I wanted to, to just bring up is kind of funding. You know, funding mm-hmm. for these for gender identity clinics is 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 definitely not at the level it should be. And I know that you've done some work in terms of the kind of the work that you were doing on the women's policy group to talk about a recovery. Is there do you have an idea of what would be a good level of funding or like how we could transform that kind of the resources and funding that people need to do their job well in in these settings so the 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 problem from a northern irish perspective of of trying to figure that out is that we actually don't know how much funding is being allocated to gender identity services as it is oh wow and that's because uh sorry i'm going i'm gonna go into the weeds here a little bit um the the Brackenburn Clinic. There's a reason that it's not called, for instance, the Belfast Gender Identity Clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because the Brackenburn Clinic originated as a psychosexual service. Okay. It was not a it was not a gender service. It has not been commissioned to support trans people. Right. It is a psychosexual service that started taking referrals from trans patients. Okay. And started treating trans patients because again, it's based within that psychosexual framework. And after you know, kind of three, four, five years of just getting an increased amount of patients um, who are identifying as trans coming in, they basically, you know, they they kind of de facto became a gender identity clinic or or gender identity service. Because that clinic has never been commissioned as a gender identity clinic, Mm -hmm. 
we we can't get access to the the funding that it has because it's just kind of rolled into the 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 psychosexual funding it's not there there's no specific you know subsection in the budget that that kind of says okay this is the amount that goes to to gender identity services so we just we just don't know how much money is in gender services but i do I personally, whenever I'm talking about this uh, kind of trans healthcare stuff, I think the question always does come down to, you know, funding and staffing. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, that's almost where it, where it ends. If we were doing this in a good practice manner, if we were delivering gender affirming healthcare in the way that we should be, mm-hmm. it would be much cheaper than the way that we're doing it now. Wow. Because the way that we're doing it now is inserting these extended waiting periods Mm -hmm. is forcing people to go through this rigorous and invasive and interrogatory assessment process Mm -hmm. is taking up staff time is you know kind of again injecting these artificial wait times you know you the requirement to have quote unquote real life experience as a trans person the requirement to have quote unquote relatively stable psychosocial health um that you know all of these different all these different boxes that they have to tick creates waiting times that creates that that lengthens the amount of time that a person spends mm-hmm. within a service if someone was accessing a service and accessing the things that they needed then you know realistically it would probably be cheaper to run yeah, totally, um, totally again you know i can't give you exact figures because the department of health won't give us exact yeah. figures but you know it's money saving if yeah. we go even if we go for instance to down the primary care route mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is you know ideally if we're looking far into the future this stuff should be delivered by gps yes exactly this stuff shouldn't be confined to a specialist service so yeah again if we're looking further like down, down that end of things that's going to be even cheaper just in terms of you know yeah. not having to yeah. commission a specialist service obviously totally. there does still need to be you know specific uh kind of specific training for those gps there needs to be training across the healthcare service or for mm-hmm. for different clinicians and different practitioners who are working with trans people um and and you know we kind of recognize that there are a lot of goals that we have that are very long term um we we actually we split it up into whenever we were writing our policy on on gender affirming healthcare mm-hmm. reform we split it up into short medium and long term goals for what we want to see yeah, and yeah. if you're interested if you're interested uh, if your listeners out there are interested in in learning kind of more about the the in-depth policy on this stuff we wrote a 10-page kind of brief document um uh, you can find it on our website at transgenderni.org.uk forward slash trans healthcare um i may be biased but i think it's pretty good <laughs> i'm sure it will be we'll definitely include it in the in the notes for the for the podcast and on all the social Fabulous. media so people have access to it for that thing <laughs> i think yeah i just wanted to get the funding question out there you know because as of someone course. who's you know it's it's it comes up doesn't it time and time again but for me you know mm-hmm. i hate that we have to often equate the value of something into economic values you know it should just be done because it's someone's access to healthcare, regardless of how, how, how long it is but it's crazy that it could Absolutely. be cheaper you know for for the service no. 100 um, percent, and i mean like i think maybe this is maybe this is maybe going off topic a little bit but i mean i think that with all the talk lately about borrowing rates and about stocks and about the gold standards and the economy and it's all fake oh my god i see this all the time (laughs) it's 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 all fake and like I, i i was on the bbc um talking about bitcoin 
um, at one point a few weeks ago. I know, kind of off brand yeah. for me, but you know, we were doing the papers and we were talking about Bitcoin, and I had to hold myself back from just being like, "Look, it's all fake. It's all made up. It's not real." Oh my god! All, I, all this economy stuff. I have this. It's, it's I have this thought like ridiculous. maybe once a week. Like I just turn around to people and I'm like, "You understand that this only exists because some people decided that this is a system that we do. You know, it's not. It's not something that like I I didn't become a class at uni and I just yeah I just like didn't understand any of it because I was like, "You're just making up things." Like a bond is just something made up, you know? I think I'd probably <laughs> if I thought about it, like, you know, how like I think about critical feminist theory, I probably would have understood it more. But I think I came in, you know, oh, I, like we're definitely yes, on the same way but, there. Yeah, but unfortunately, cri- critical feminist theory has more application in the modern world yeah. than economics than does. It's all economics, fake. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's probably one of the takeaways from the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Israel, healthcare and also economics is is going is, is, is a fake subject. Is yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, I just, I'm, I'm conscious we're running out of time, but I want to just quickly touch upon, I always try to finish, sorry, and talk about what an individual can do, like someone who's listening. How can they get involved, whether it's, you know, supporting in Northern Ireland or in the, uh, in the rest of, uh, of Britain? Is there any organizations obviously your own we can talk a little bit more about transgender and i and are there any kind of petitions or or groups or 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 places they can be donating to support um support this topic Mm -hmm. so yes so um i'm one of the directors of transgender and i i'm obviously you know i'm here as an individual trans person not everything i say is is representative of the organization as a whole Um, but you know uh, disclaimer is it's it's always good to throw it in there um especially when you're saying things like the economy (laughs) um but you can find our work on transgenderni.org.uk you can follow us on twitter or facebook at transgenderni and i would recommend you do so we're pretty cool some of the things that we do so we run the belfast trans resource center which as far as we're aware is the only dedicated trans community space in the whole of the uk and ireland um quite a big deal we have been doing some covid stuff so we run an online community space for trans folks um so if any of uh, any of your listeners are trans people living in northern ireland who haven't yet engaged with transgender and i please do we'd love we'd love to hear from you we have started a covid trans community fund kind of giving 50 to 100 pounds out to trans folks across northern ireland who need it uh who are you know facing facing you know following the christmas period christmas debt um you know need money for health care need money for for um access to you know food and paying their heating bills and all that whatever um so so we've got that in terms of our healthcare advocacy a lot of it a lot of it is kind of you know shouting at departmental officials and writing to your mps and your mlas in terms of you know what what the folks in Britain can do, raising awareness of this. If you're a member of a political party, if you're, you know, kind of involved in that kind of organizing, um, especially if you're in the Labour Party and and trying to push on trans rights within there, making sure that the Northern Irish voice isn't lost is is absolutely essential. You can donate to Transgender NI and that money goes to supporting our advocacy work. It goes to, you know, that some of that money will go to the trans fund it'll um, go to us being able to run events and you know keeping the belfast trans resource center kind of running while we're not able to use it yeah. <laughs> um 
and, getting and, it all ready know, for once once that grand reopening basically absolutely <laughs> getting ready for a big party yeah uh, <laughs> and yeah if if you well if you want to write to your mp to you know kind of express your concern about the, yeah. the state of, of trans rights in Northern Ireland and across the UK, I would encourage you to do so. If you're in Northern Ireland, you can write to your MLA. We also have a, a petition on, it's, it's a platform called Uplift, uplift.ie. That is, uh, that is a kind of uh, petition slash open letter that enables you to write to the health minister and send a letter to the to the Northern Ireland Health Minister. And what we were encouraging people to do is because, you know, I am one trans person. Mm-hmm. Transgender and I is made up of, of, you know, a few trans folks. So we, we, you know, a few of us do a lot of work, but it's also about all of the communities on the ground. It's also about, you know, everyone who engages with us, everyone yep. who goes to the BTRC. We don't want to be speaking for people. We yeah. want to give people the opportunity to speak for themselves as well. And, and so what, what that kind of uplift petition did was enable people to edit the letter that they were writing to the mm-hmm. health minister. So, you know, we have a little bit that we've already written, but like if trans people wanted to put in their own experience of accessing healthcare um, and why they feel like, you know, urgent support is needed for trans communities in Northern Ireland, you know, that's giving, giving folks the opportunity to, to kind of put their voice across as well. So yeah, there's 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 lots of different ways, and and you know, um, we'll make sure to we'll definitely make sure to um to include those in any of the links that we have on our things. And what I've been saying to people is that you know, particularly at the moment, we're all very bored, right? And we don't have a lot to do. Yeah. So why not put your 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 five minutes or ten minutes of doom scrolling to good use <laughs> and 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 send a nice petition? You know, um, I five definitely... or ten minutes of doom scrolling is a is a bit of a an underestimate, I would say. Yeah, that's for, true. For I'm definitely on the right <laughs> <laughs> but take 10 minutes of doom scrolling out of your day and, and do that that way well yeah thank you so much Alexa that was such an interesting conversation and has really sparked me to learn some more and to dig more into the policy I think that's something that I didn't quite quite understand and I'm, I'm also a bit of a policy nerd who likes to go into all the particularly <laughs> around health so I'm keen to keen to read that document you were talking Same. about um, <laughs> and yeah as always if people have enjoyed the podcast you can find us on on Twitter at podcast futures on Instagram at feminist futures podcast and on email at feminist futures podcast at gmail.com thanks so much